Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Wednesday, December the 21st, 2011. This is episode 808. And you know what today is? Today is the winter solstice, the shortest day north of the equator for total daylight. It is the literal beginning of winter, and in some ways it's the depths of winter because it's the most darkness and the least light. And that's when we start to get cold, really cold. And what does that mean? That means that we need to worry about keeping ourselves warm when it's too cold. And one of the ways we can do that is with wood stoves and wood fireplace inserts. And today, I have a perfect guest for the winter solstice. I promise you, we didn't plan it this way. It just worked out that way. His name is Jeff Wheatley, and he's been uh, installing and uh, selling and servicing uh, health hearth appliances like stoves and inserts and fireplaces for over 15 years. And we'll have him on with us in just a moment. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, today's sponsor of the day number one is the Berkey Guy. I mean, what do you think you're going to get from the Berkey Guy? Shocking as it may be, Berkey, light water filtration systems, and other great things for your prepping. And you'll find all that good stuff at Directive21.com. That's Directive and then the number 21.com. And Jeff is a guy that you will enjoy dealing with. You will enjoy having a business relationship with him. And you will know that if anything goes wrong, and because humans are involved in the distribution chain, sometimes things do go wrong, like with the mail or what have you, he's going to fix it. He's going to make it right, and he's going to take care of you. And that's why I'm so grateful to have had him for a sponsor for going on three years now. And water, folks, is the is the fundamental cornerstone to our survival. And having good quality water day-to-day and good quality water during a disaster are both extremely important. So you really do need a good water water system in your home. And I can't recommend anything better than Berkey. And if you're going to get a Berkey, go to the Berkey guy. Again, at Directive21.com. Next up, Shelf Reliance. Notice I said shelf like something you put stuff on, not a, not yourself like you yourself. Shelf Reliance uh, specializes in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store Store what you eat by building these rack systems that allow you to store your canned goods. Anything from little bitty cans like tomato paste to great big number 10 cans and anything in between. Completely customizable and configurable. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Some of the best tasting long-term storage food I've ever eaten. Stuff I'd be happy to eat on any given day as far as the quality and taste of the food is concerned with a massive selection. So check out ShelfReliance.com today. Remember the best way to make sure that you're dealing with one of our real sponsors and not some cheap imitator, is go to the survivalpodcast.com first, look for their banners in the right-hand margin, and click on the banner for the sponsor of your choice. And remember, these guys do support the show. And unlike a lot of things in podcasting and radio, our sponsors are long-term sponsors. There isn't a sponsor with us that hasn't been with us for at least a year, and I would say of the 12, 10 have been with us for more than two years. They are loyal to us, so please, when you're looking to buy something, check and see if they offer it, and do business with somebody who supports the content that you listen to every day. I'd also say make sure you, if you're an MSB member, whenever you're buying anything, go to the MSB first and see if anybody has a special deal for you. 
32 vendors sitting back there right now with great discounts. Make sure you take advantage of them. And they're also, of course, people supporting the show, so give them business when you can. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, those are the best social media platforms to use to get in touch with me. I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't really use it very much. So uh, Facebook's the big one. Facebook's the one I'm on every day. Some of you guys are still trying to connect with me personally. Occasionally, I approve a bunch of people as friends. You're wasting your time, though, man. I don't spend personal time on Facebook. I, I went and let too many people on the friends list that I didn't know when I first started doing the show. And it's overwhelming, and I don't really keep in touch with anything there. I pay attention to my fan page. If you post to my fan page, I'm going to interact with you, uh, or at least I'm going to see what you have to say. And the best way to get in touch with me, as always, folks, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's my real email. doesn't go to anybody else. I don't filter it other than for spam, and uh, I don't answer every email I, I, I get anymore. I can't do it. There's just too many, but I do read them all. So if you want to get in touch with me, email is the number one way. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get uh, exclusive discounts that are available only to members, exclusive content that are available only to members, over $150 worth of free ebooks, some videos that you can't get anywhere else, uh, and a bunch of great stuff. And you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And because of the hiccup we had last week uh, on Friday with the site getting hacked, uh, I did extend the sale till today, Wednesday the 21st, summer solstice. Uh, tonight at midnight, the sale is gone. There will not be another sale. I keep saying this, but there won't be March or April before we do another sale. So if you want to get in on a good price for the MSB, 30 bucks is like just stupid cheap. Uh, and if you are paying by U.S. mail with silver, cash, money, order, check, remember you can just mail the form in. As long as it's postmarked this week, we'll, we'll take it on it. Just write snow on the, uh, on the top of it. And with that, I've got all of the housekeeping wrapped up and I'm ready to introduce our special guest. Again, his name is Jeff Wheatley. He has a really cool blog that's at prepchurch.com. We'll probably talk about that a bit today as well. But again, Jeff has been uh, selling, installing, and servicing hearth appliances, which are like stoves, inserts, and fireplaces, for over 15 years, uh, including all the major fuel types, wood burning, liquid propane, natural, natural gas, pellet burning. Uh, and we're going to talk today about the safe install and use of wood stoves. He's going to give us some tips on how to get the best efficiency, the most heat, the least creosote, the easiest maintenance, and the safest operations from your wood stove. And with that, hey, Jeff, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. So um, I just told people, you've been doing this for a while, about a decade and a half, and 15 years of selling, installing, and servicing stoves and inserts, fireplaces, and all that stuff. And uh, I'm going to start out with a question that's maybe a little bit specific. But um, when I started looking at putting an insert into my place here in Hot Springs, well, major expense is this new chimney. Now, I've already got a chimney, and, and they've kind of explained it to me, but I think a lot of people maybe need to understand what, what's the difference. Why is it so expensive for a chimney for a stove or an insert versus a chimney for a fireplace? Okay. Well, when you're dealing specifically with uh, stoves, their chimneys are tested to a different standard than what fireplace chimney is tested for, and that, and that comes back to the difference in how a fireplace burns versus a stove. Because a fireplace in its modern incarnation is not specifically, uh, not first and foremost, a heating appliance. It's a decorative appliance. And there's a lot of extra air that comes in that mixes with the, uh, the smoke and the flue gases and mixes with that in the chimney, diluting the amount of heat, diluting the smoke as it's going up through the chimney. Um, so they typically have larger chimneys. Um, they are not tested to as high of a standard. You know, a fireplace chimney is typically only tested to a 1,700-degree test for 10 minutes total. And that's like to simulate, simulate like one good chimney fire, whereas a stove chimney 
Um, their standard testing method is to go to 2100 degrees for three separate 10-minute tests in order to uh, simulate hotter exhaust, and, you know, multiple chimney fires, and it's just a, a different type of, of combustion that's going on there. So stove chimney is going to be a lot more expensive per foot than fireplace chimney. When you get into installing an insert into a fireplace, if you dump exhaust from an insert into a fireplace chimney, that chimney is not tested for the kinds of temperatures you can get. There's also the problem with just getting the smoke from the stove, the top of the stove, up through the damper area into the chimney itself. And uh, just putting a face on the front of the insert isn't going to really protect you from that smoke coming into the house. It's, you know, it's kind of billowing out into the firebox and then leaking its way up into the chimney. So typically, you really need to reline one of those in order to get it to work right. But you know, we can talk about that a little bit further, further down the road here today. Oh, I got kind of a question on that. I mean, that kind of furs right off the bat that the stove chimney is going to be smaller in diameter since it'll fit inside the existing sleeve. Is that partly because you're putting more heat into the house so there's less heat needing to go up to improve that efficiency, or is it just that's how they make them? It's a little bit of both. Um, typically, your wood stove chimney is going to be a 6-inch for 90-plus percent of the uh, stoves on the market today. There are still some 8-inch chimney systems, 8-inch stoves, but the vast majority of them are 6-inch. And when you go to do a reline, um, adding just one more wall layer into your existing fireplace chimney will typically bring your fireplace chimney up to the level of a typical you know, stove chimney. So when you're going to do a reline, like in your kind of a case, if you want to put a wood stove insert into your fireplace, you just run a single wall, six-inch stainless steel reline pipe down through the existing chimney, which is in almost every case at least an eight or a ten-inch for for most manufactured um, fireplaces. Um, can be a thirteen by thirteen clay tile in in a masonry construction, but uh, you've always got a lot more room there, and that's one of the other reasons why you must reline because oversizing the chimney will prevent the appliance from drawing properly. Gotcha. So, I mean, if you look around, like, there's some really cheap stoves out there, stuff that, like, you know, 150 bucks at Tractor Supply or whatever, and they, to me, they look like the old-style stoves. They're just basically a tank with a chimney, and you throw wood in there and you burn it. And then modern wood stoves can be quite expensive, so can modern inserts, right? Can you, like, kind of explain, like, what's the biggest difference between, like, an old-school stove and a new-school stove? Well, the main difference between an older wood stove and the modern, you know, the EPA-approved modern wood stoves, um, catalytic wood stoves, um, high-tech or, or non-catalytic, depending on what brand you're talking to, they'll, they'll call them different things. But the biggest difference is the design of how the burn works because your old, old-fashioned wood stoves up through the 70s, let's say, typically was just a box with a pipe coming out the top of it. So you've got combustion going on where the fire is burning, where the wood is burning, and then the smoke just basically goes right up the, the, the chimney of that appliance. A modern stove is going to increase efficiency by adding extra um, extra deflectors, a, uh, what's called a smoke shelf in, in some cases, um, that's going to create a pathway for that smoke to have to go a different direction, usually coming forward in the stove, then up onto that shelf, then back again before going up the chimney. That increases the amount of what's called residency time of how long the heat stays in the appliance before it goes up the chimney. So you're getting more of that heat able to soak through the appliance into the living area and less of that heat being lost up the chimney. There's also turbulence, um, temperature, turbulence, and time are the three main design features of what makes uh, combustion efficiency. 
Um, so we've got the uh, time, which is how long that heat stays. How same concept as in um, in your permaculture stuff with getting water to uh, not leave as quickly. You want it to take the longest, slowest path. Same concept happens here with combustion. You want the heat and the smoke to take the longest, slowest path to getting out, so more of it can soak into the house. Um, so that's your time. You've got your temperature, which is just having a very well-insulated stove so that you have a very hot firebox because the higher the temperature of the combustion area, the more efficient that fuel is going to be turned into more heat. And um, and then the turbulence, which is the ready availability of oxygen so that it's burning clean and it's not starving for air all the time. So your modern stoves have a lot of those design features built into them. You, when you get into price differences between the less expensive stoves and the modern ones, you can also run into just the sheer weight of an appliance because, you know, I, I don't know about, you know, most of your other listeners, but in, in my industry and in just stoves, we also deal in, in other products in my day job. And what I know is sold at like Lowe's and Home Depot and Tractor Supply is the lightest, thinnest, cheapest version of anything else that we sell in our specialty stores. So, you know, light, cheap basically translates into less mass, doesn't take as long to heat up, doesn't take as long to cool down when it's done. It's also not going to last as long. It's going to burn out faster over the years. So typically the bigger, heavier, more expensive stoves are going to last you longer as well. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for mass. Yesterday, like sort of unrelated, uh, we were cooking some stew at the house, and I had this big cast iron Dutch oven, and I had the oven just as low as you possibly could before it turns off, and it's just simmering perfectly. And I showed it to my wife. I said, you just can't do that with an aluminum pan. It, it, it just can't be done. So that mass uh, and holding that extra heat has has a lot going for it. You brought up something, though, that I maybe you could go a little bit deeper into, because I've gotten this question a couple of times, and I really don't know how to answer it. Um, I've been asked by quite a few listeners, should I get a catalytic or a non-catalytic stove? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my experience has been that catalytic stoves do burn a little bit longer than a non-cat. And so if you're really looking for the absolute best efficiency you can possibly get out of an appliance, a uh, catalytic stove in general is going to give you a greater edge on that. Um, you, know, you may be talking about 10 to 20 percent uh, better efficiency overall, which means 10 to 20 percent less wood being burned in order to heat your house in a given season. Um, not 10 to 20 percent better efficiency as far as efficiency numbers. That's, that's a different world. But you're going to burn a little bit less wood. And uh, the the difference, though, is in the long term, your catalytic stove is going to require um, a new catalyst because those don't last forever. It's a it's a chemical impregnated ceramic structure. It looks kind of like a uh, squared off honeycomb, and um, it's I think it's palladium and maybe some other metals. I'm, I'm not a stove builder, um, but it's chemically impregnated, and that chemical in the presence of heat and combustible materials actually causes the smoke to burn at a lower temperature than it would normally burn at. So that allows it to more efficiently burn the smoke that's coming off the, of the uh, initial combustion. Now, I didn't talk about this earlier, but in, in non-cat stoves, what they do is they add extra air into the top of the firebox underneath that smoke shelf we were talking about earlier, and that gives you an increase in efficiency right there because as the fire is burning below, the smoke rises up, hits that oxygen-rich environment, and burns the smoke right there. So there's less smoke going up the chimney to start with, which means you have less junk going up there to form creosote. You have less pollutants going into the atmosphere. You've got just a better a better situation all around. So to me, I mean, when you say cat, you know, the first thing I think of is catalytic converters. And if you've ever had one go out in a car, 
it's, it's a fair expense. I mean, palladium or platinum or whatever they're using on there is an expensive mineral or, or metal. Um, so it's, it, it, is it almost like a cost analysis thing? Because if you get 20% less wood and you're buying your wood, well, you're probably going to pay yourself back pretty quick. But if you have your own, you know, lot that you're coppicing on or pollarding on, you get your own wood and, you know, more wood is not really a big deal to you, then you have less ongoing maintenance and upfront costs or is it? It, it can be. Is it just preference on some level? Yeah, a lot of it's preference. Um, the other thing is, you know, catalytic stoves, because they have a catalyst that has to be turned on, and usually what happens is that in the design of the stove, there's a bypass. Uh, so there's an extra shutter in addition to your air control that allows the heat and the smoke to bypass the catalyst initially so that you can get the fire going well. Because you don't want that early um, smoke from the early parts of combustion because that's when it's dirtiest. It's not up to temperature yet. It's not burning as efficiently yet. So you've got the dirtiest, junkiest smoke at that point. Once it's going well and you've got the temperature up, then you close that bypass and the smoke is then channeled through the catalyst where the catalyst can then activate and burn that extra smoke. So it's... It is a preference thing, but it's also a simplicity. A non-cat system, typically, like when I'm on a sales floor and I'm working with a customer about stoves, if they're a serious wood burner, they live out in the sticks, that's going to be their main source of heat, they're going to use wood every day, all winter long, I generally am more inclined to show them catalytic stoves to, to point them that direction. If they, you know, they've never had a stove, they've had fireplaces before, but they don't really know what the stove lifestyle is like, I'm generally a little more inclined to push them away from catalytic and go non-catalytic because um, catalytic really is kind of old, um, well, 20-year-old technology. It was very popular in the in the 80s and early 90s. But in the last 15 years since I've been in the business, none of the companies that we work with have come out with a new catalytic stove. All of the new designs have been non-catalytic, and that's because they, they can make the stove a little simpler, a little easier to operate, makes it a little more user-friendly, and it's also solid state because as long as you don't burn out a, a part by, by over-firing too much, um, you basically have a stove that's going to operate the same the day you bought it as long as it's cleaned again as it's going to operate 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Whereas with a catalytic system, figure five to seven years, you're going to have to replace a catalyst five to seven more years later. So in thinking in terms of survivalism and you know what if the stuff hits the fan, do you want to have to stock a whole bunch of extra catalysts to have for the decades to come, or do you want to just have a non-cat system that doesn't even have to fool with that? Yeah, I mean, and one of the things I'm thinking about from the same viewpoint is if they're not making new ones, it's very probable that the catalyst for your stove may someday not be made anymore. That's um, possible. There, there is a couple of companies that are catalyst companies, and they make catalysts okay. of every shape and size for every odd stove you can think of. But there is one other different thing that I, I didn't even mention to you in, in the notes and stuff, and that is the fact that right now the stove industry is facing a couple of major government attacks. One is through the EPA, and the other one is through the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy is actually attacking us on the gas front um, with some drastic changes for fireplaces, gas logs, and some other you know, gas-burning appliances. But on the wood stove front, the, depart the uh, EPA is going after us again on the uh, emissions, and this is actually what spurred the EPA stoves that came out in the early 90s going forward for the last 20 years now. And the EPA, if they come forward with some of these new, what we're calling draconian measures, um, you could see actually a resurgence of catalytic stoves because that's going to be the only way to get the testing to, at least in my opinion, that's one of the, the 
easiest ways for them to go ahead and get back into bringing the testing to a higher efficiency level because in general the catalytic stoves have been able to be tested a little bit higher efficiency when they're working perfect but personally i don't like stuff that runs down wears out has to be replaced i like solid state put it in forget about it for decades more that's the approach i'd rather have so you know, again, it's, it's the government getting involved in trying to solve a problem that may or may not be a valid concern and possibly causing other problems and also reducing our options. Well, and, I mean, the way I look at it is, okay, so they're all worried about somebody buying this really efficient non-catalytic stove that might not be quite as efficient as if we catalyzed it and extract And you're going to make a whole case on the extraction of those resources and the leftover part that's now a pollutant and everything else. And if we even let that all go, they absolutely seem to have no consideration or care whatsoever for the thousands of people every day that just chunk logs straight into the fireplace with no improvement in efficiency uh, and have to burn seven, eight times the wood to get 40% of the heat into the house that they would if they burned, you know, that much less wood and, and, and got 100% of the heat in the house. It doesn't make any sense, but why am I not surprised? Yeah, and the stove industry has, has done some test areas. There was, uh, I think, an area in Washington a, a few years ago, and I should have, I should have had this written down to, to tell you exactly, but there was a, a stove change out program that was done for an area that had a decent amount of pollution. There were a lot of people burning wood in the area as their main source of heat. And they changed out a significant number of stoves in that area using some government funds, so we helped pay for this. But in general, it basically reduced the pollution in the area, because that's what the EPA is, is all concerned about, is the, in protecting the environment. And so this stove change-out thing proved that it, you know, we don't have to change, we don't have to make modern stoves that much more efficient. We can just change out more of the old ones. And that's one of the concerns the stove industry has on this, is that when you make these measures come out that are even more draconian, you're taking stoves that may cost, you know, they used to cost a few hundred dollars. Now they cost a thousand or two thousand. And I sell stoves that, that can be three and four thousand dollars. But let's say a couple thousand dollars on average for a good high quality stove. Now you're taking those, you're going to bump them up another 50% or so. So, you know, what if our stoves now push three thousand on average instead of two thousand? And the ones at the, at the hardware store run instead of being four, five, six hundred or a thousand dollars are now running fifteen hundred. You're pushing them out of the reach of the lower um, lower income people, and those are the well, people that just hang on a little clawfoot potbelly stove that's been around for eighty years. And the heck with you, and, I'm, and I'll keep burning that. And it's six times more polluting than anything that's out modern now. Yeah, and if if we got more of those people to change over, we could help the environment that way. But you're pricing stoves out of their reach by making even more steps now. So anyway, that gets into the whole politics side of it. And, I was really trying yeah. to come here to, to, to have uh, the practical cool. sides. Well, let's talk about kind of we've been talked a lot about chimneys and specs uh-huh. and everything like that and control. But you know, you see these old shows like Little House on the Prairie, and there's the stove sitting there, and then the pipe just goes through the wall. Right? Why can't we do that? Yeah, that's um, basically because it's not safe. Um, you know, literally this last week um, here in the shop that I work at, we had a, a one of the salespeople told me they had a customer call asking about a certain amount of single wall pipe and multiple elbows, and he got to asking, and they were going to run single wall pipe out the window. And so it's not just a, you know, it's a kind of an anecdotal joke in our industry. We, we kind of bang our heads about it. Um, you know, make fun of the people that ask this question, but there's a lot of people that just have not been exposed to some of these reasons why. I mean, it's it's safety, it's performance. Uh, a couple of the reasons are that when you're going through a wall, the heat coming off of a single wall pipe with all the testing that they've done, that's going to require an 18-inch clearance to anything combustible. 
So just for that simple reason, you can't go through a wall or a window because you're going to have, you know, window sills. You're going to have wall structure within 18 inches, some direction um, going through almost any window you're going to try to go to. So that's that's not even really an option there. Uh, but the other thing is once you take single wall pipe outside, getting back to how, you know, how hot the stove is, how hot the fire is, how hot the smoke now coming through the pipe is, creosote forms anywhere that there is a cold area. It's just like moisture condensing on a glass of iced tea in the summertime. It's going to condense on a cold surface. So when you've got smoke pouring through a pipe and you run that single wall pipe outside, the exterior of that pipe now cools off dramatically because it's wintertime when you're running the stove and the pipe is very, very cold. So the smoke inside then sees that cold surface and wants to condense on it. So you have drastically increased the amount of creosote buildup you're going to get when you're running single wall or, or not heavily insulated enough pipe on the outside of a house. So it, and, and as that smoke cools off, it's not going to draw up the pipe as easily because it goes faster up the pipe the hotter that smoke stays. The more it cools off, the slower it goes. So you're re- reducing your uh, draft of the appliance when you're cooling it off by running too much single wall pipe. And there's actually cases even in some of these newer houses where you have really, really tall living areas. You might have a you know 15 or 20 foot tall ceiling in the living area. We n- we really never recommend running a single wall pipe for that long. Typically, they, in the industry, we're saying about nine foot of single wall is about the furthest you want to go, even inside the house. Um, once you you know if you're going to go any longer than that, use what's called double wall black pipe, which is just a two walled version of the black pipe. Once you get to a wall or a ceiling, you transition to chimney pipe, which is the really expensive stuff, the very heavily insulated stuff. And, uh, you know, this wasn't one of the questions, but, you know, real quickly, chimney pipe comes um, in double wall insulated versions. It also comes in triple wall versions. So a lot of people come in assuming, well, I need triple wall. Well, you don't actually have to have triple wall. You need chimney pipe. And triple wall is one way of making chimney pipe. You can also do just two walls but have a heavy, dense insulation in between them that will do as good or better in many cases than a triple wall pipe can do. But the key is it's the insulation that's the big deal. Exactly. Now. The key is to insulate the inner wall so that the smoke inside stays hot. That reduces the heat coming sideways so it protects the structure of the home, but it also keeps the flue gases hotter so that they, they rise better and it's going to continue to you know, maintain the draw properly. Cool. Well, you know, speaking of pipes, I always ask my guests to give me a few questions to throw their way. And one you gave me that I would have never even thought to ask is, which end of these pipes is up? That one is another funny, common one in the industry that we hear about. That I mean, if you've ever been in a house, seen a pipe system, and you look at the black pipe above the stove, and there's this black stuff, looks like oil dripping out of the joints. And if you see that, uh, and especially if it's a vertical section, a vertical connection, it's not, not a horizontal run, because uh, you know, on a horizontal run, you should still have, just like on plumbing, you should always have a slight um, angle to the run. It's not going to be perfectly horizontal. But uh, especially on a vertical, if you see stuff running down the outside of the pipe from the joints, that's because the pipe is connected upside down. And everybody thinks that you should put the pipe so that it funnels into the piece above it, and they always assume that it has to do with getting the smoke into the pipe above it. Well, smoke doesn't, isn't going to try to leak sideways through joints when it's got this nice big gaping six-inch hole right above its head for it to rise up into. Smoke is not the issue. The issue is creosote. And as that creosote forms on the walls inside the pipe, 
you've got to have the pipe connected, and this is from the stovetop all the way out to the cap. Every single piece, the inner wall of the pipe, should always funnel into the piece below it. That way, as creosote does form, it's going to run down the inner wall, and it's funneled into the piece below it, containing it inside the system, so that if it makes it that far, it can run all the way to the stovetop and be burned up safely, rather than getting outside of the pipe, where if you do have a chimney fire, now you've got fuel outside of the pipe that could catch fire, and that fire from inside the system can spread to the outside and burn the house down. And it's never a good thing to stand out in the middle of wintertime watching your house burn to the ground, and it's a nice, perfectly stocked retreat with all your MREs and all your guns in there, and it's burning up and going up in flames because you didn't put your pipe together properly. Uh, you'll be warm for a few hours, and then it'll be really, really cold, too. Yeah. So it sounds like a really bad idea. Um Now, I've got to a point where I've decided that I'm going to do a fireplace insert. And I've got an existing fireplace, mm -hmm. so I know I'm going to have to worry about sleeving the chimney, and I don't really see that as really being a problem or anything. But what's kind of the best approach for somebody that's in that situation? It's like, I've got a fireplace, so I'm not going to stick in a freestanding wood stove that's too complicated, doesn't fit with the decor or whatever. I want something that slides in there and basically just sticks out a little bit, and I want to improve my efficiency. Kind of what should be their, their process for getting that done? Well, generally what I'd recommend is if, if you've got the money to do it, um, hire somebody that is a NFI certified installer. And you can go to nficertified.org. Uh, I'm certified there. I'm you know, purposely not giving out my full name and telling people where I'm from because I don't really want people hunting me down. I'm not here to sell stoves. Um, but if you go to nficertified.org, put in your zip code, and they'll give you a list of people in your state, in your area, that are certified wood stove installers. And they've gone through testing. They know what can be done, what can't be done. So that's that's a good way to get help if you're not comfortable doing the work yourself. Now, if you're a handyman, you know, you're interested in trying to, to do this yourself, um, the short version of this is you're going to need to reline kit. Um, you need to make sure that the appliance that you find um, is going to be short enough to fit into the opening of your fireplace because that's the number one um, roadblock that we run into with people wanting an insert is that uh, you know a wood stove has to be a certain height in order to uh, you know to have room for the fire to burn plus the extra air chamber you know the extra air inputs at the top or the catalyst the smoke shelf all this extra space requires a certain amount of height and so you need to basically think in terms of get yourself a cardboard box and what's the tallest cardboard box that you could slide into your fireplace as if you were sliding the stove in take that measurement with you and then go stove shopping that will help a lot Um, and then in, once you get the idea of that's going to go in there, you've got to run the reline pipe down from above. There's flexible reline pipe systems, so if you've got a masonry-type fireplace or if you've got any kind of bends in your chimney, you're not going to be able to run rigid single wall down through there. So you get um, stainless steel flexible reline. It looks kind of like corrugated uh, dryer ducting, but it's made out of stainless steel, and it always has to be stainless steel for solid fuel combustion because it's the only thing that's going to hold up to the corrosiveness of the smoke and the heat that you're getting. And just as a side note, that's one thing we run into on pellet stoves. People try to buy a pellet stove and then want to use B-Vent gas pipe because that's what it looks like uh, when you look at pellet pipe, and it's a lot more expensive for pellet pipe, and they don't realize that pellet pipe is stainless steel on the inside and B-Vent gas pipe is aluminum. And you can melt out the inner wall of a uh, aluminum-lined B-Vent pipe by running a pellet stove through it. So anyway, that's pellet stoves. So on wood stoves, stainless steel, reline pipe. If it's a straight run, you can run rigid. If it's not, you can run a flexible reline. There's reline kits starting about $300 that has 15 foot of flex, a, a new cap for the top if you can't incorporate in your old one. 
a uh, connector for the bottom to connect into the top of the stove. Um, another thing that you may run into is the if the pipe comes straight out of your chimney, first of all, you have to take the damper out. But imagine this extra pipe sliding through your chimney and hanging down into the firebox, and you've got the stove pushed in from below. You've got to get those two connected, and they don't always line up perfectly. So in some cases, the flex will help you there. In other cases, when it's really, really tight, if there's not enough room, you may have to get an offset box. And there's a couple of different brands, um, you know, stove companies that, that make those. So a good stove shop should be able to help you out in finding one of those. Uh, I've had some custom made with a metal shop here in town over the years. So, uh, you know, it's not really complicated. You just got to make sure you still have the same cross-section area so you're not creating a restriction point for the smoke. It's always got to be the same amount of cross-section area that your pipe has. So that gets into doing a little bit of basic high school geometry of uh, finding the, the area of a circle. So your six-inch pipe is pi r squared. The radius is three, so three squared is nine. Nine times pi is, you know, 27, 28 inches or so of cross-section area for six-inch stuff. And just make sure any kind of adapters that you do do reduce it below that. Gotcha. Um, you mentioned something about the size of the fireplace. Some houses, especially now, are built with some pretty small fireplaces. Have you ever had a person where you just said, "It just there is no stove that's going to fit in your fireplace, or pretty much any fireplaces are a stove that will, some stove or some insert that will work for it? No, it's possible to get one that's just flat out too small to fit a fire to fit a stove into. Um, we had a customer that didn't that we were able to finally find one that would work, but they had to step down from a stove that they wanted that would heat 2,400 square feet down to one that's going to heat about 1,100 square feet. So they ended up going with half the size stove that they were initially wanting because they wouldn't look at other possible options. They wanted it to be in the fireplace. That was the only place they wanted to do it. Um, your other options, if you do run into a size problem and can't fit it into your fireplace, is you can either you know abandon the fireplace and go to a freestanding and put it wherever you want to in the house. Um, the other option is to do what's called a hearth heater, which is a stove that's made to sit right on the hearth or on the ground um, or to basically stand directly in front of the fireplace. Or you can just find a freestanding stove that has a exit point on the stove. Instead of being straight up on the top, it's straight out on the back as an option. Sometimes they've got a little plate that you move to access the other option. Some models actually have a 45-degree exit, so you start off with one 45-degree piece of pipe to either turn to go straight up or you turn to go straight sideways, uh, or straight back, I mean. So you can do a freestanding stove or a hearth heater that sits on the hearth or in front of the fireplace, run the pipe straight back into the fireplace, then do a T, and then go straight up with your reline pipe. And so that's another option. And that does actually help. It takes up more floor space to do it that way, but when you put an insert into a fireplace, you actually are then relying on the blowers to get some of the heat off the back and, and sides of the stove and throw it out into the room for you. Because otherwise, without that blower, some of that heat is going to soak into the structure of the house. And if you're on an exterior wall, which is a builder's most common place to put a fireplace, you're going to lose some of that to the exterior wall of the house. So you're not going to get as much heat from the appliance as you would if the blower is running which pushes that heat off the back and sides, blows it into the room. So by making a freestanding setup or a hearth heater where the vast majority of the stove is exposed to the room air, you're now making yourself less dependent on electricity because you do not have to have the blower for that heat to come off of the appliance. It's, it's going to come off into the room. It's not going to you know, go finding its way into the, into the fireplace. You know, some, it'll warm up the fireplace some because it's right there, but... You're just less dependent on the electric, electrical blower that way. 
Well, and that's a great thing to bring up because I've noticed these things all have blowers. Number one on that, a question I have for you is how, how, how noisy are these things on some of these stoves? Because, like, I have one built into my fireplace. It, I guess the theory is, because what this thing does is draw air, and it's on the bottom, and you switch it on, and it draws the cold air off the bottom, which, of course, the hot air is pushing the cold air down as the fireplace, in theory, at least warms the room. So are these things noisy? And then two is... If you're dealing with an insert that uses a blower to make it more efficient and your power's out, now you're relying on it. Do you just get a less efficient stove or do you end up with problems? And you do not end up with problems. They'll, they'll run just fine. They will, they will burn just fine without any electricity to run the blowers. Uh, the blowers are an option on many of the inserts that we sell at our store. Um, so it's not something that, that's essential. It just means that you're not going to get as much heat off of the stove into the living space because you don't have that blower to help with that. Um, as far as sound, the blowers are moderately quiet, but typically they have to be mounted on the front of the stove right there in the room, basically, um, underneath the front door. Sometimes they're mounted on the sides. It depends on the design of the stove. But they're right there in order to keep them cooler because if they put them back in the back of the stove or underneath the stove or, or somewhere else like that, it's going to heat up those uh, those the motors and the fan blades, and you're going to have failure of parts, plus it makes them hard to get to. So they typically put them out front. So they're a little noisier than they could be, but it makes them last longer. Um, you know, if, you, if anybody's got a, a factory-built fireplace, which is you know what you have, you know, metal fireplace, you know, built in a factory, set in place, framed around. Um, if you've got a fan in one of those, you probably would have a little more fan noise, but less air noise, because you know those fireplaces typically are, are pretty lightweight. Um, they rattle, they they echo a lot because there's just a lot of airspace there. Now, you mentioned about uh, how that fan moves the air. Um, the same, basically imagine if your fireplace is heated up and you do not have a fan running, all of those air chambers underneath the stove or underneath the fireplace, behind the back wall and side walls, and then above the top of the fireplace, as those areas heat up, that hot air starts to rise. So it rises up the back walls in, inside the back wall of the fireplace and vents out through the top louvers on the front of the fireplace. Now, when you add a blower, you always add the blower to blow the same direction that natural draft is going to be mush- pushing the air as well. So it's pulling in down below, pushing it up the back wall, and then out the top louvers into the room. And all, all stove blowers are typically going to run on the same basic direction. You always go with the natural draft of the heat and not against it. Cool. I... Um Another thing I've noticed around here a lot is a lot of people selling firewood. And I don't mean to put nobody down or anything, but what I see happening is we had a lot of storms this year. A lot of trees went down. A lot of this wood's been cut in July and August uh, and was fresh and green when it was cut. To me, that wood's probably not really seasoned very well yet, especially if it wasn't split right when it was cut, if it was you know just split after you know they decided to stack it and, and ship it or whatever. Can you talk about why seasoning your wood is so important? Well, the easiest way to illustrate that, you know, I've, we've had people over the years think that, uh, you know, wet b- wood burns longer. So, you know, I, I just throw a big, you know, green chunk of something in there and it'll take a long time to burn. Well, it does, but that doesn't mean that it's actually burning efficiently and giving you the most amount of heat you could get for the same piece of wood. Um, you know, the best example to give is, you know, what if I handed you two big rolled up Sunday newspapers and I had soaked one of them in a bucket of water for a while and the other one's bone dry. Now, which one would you rather burn in your stove? Well, they're both going to burn eventually, but the wet one is actually going to take heat from the fire 
in order to boil off the moisture before the paper itself can burn. So the dry one is not going to have to take all that extra heat, not going to be putting all that extra moisture up the chimney that can condense and condensing with other stuff with it, causing creosote formation. So the drier the wood is in general, the better it's going to perform, the better the heat output from the stove because you're not having to boil off so much stuff to begin with. Um, We had one customer several years back, um, somebody in the city here, we put in a stove like the first week of January one year, and they called us like the first week of February, so right out a month later, complaining the stove isn't burning well, it's dirty glass, I can't keep it clean, it's smoking real bad, smoldering. I go out to look at it, and uh, first thing I notice as I come up, I look up at the chimney from outside, and the stainless steel chimney pipe has turned kind of blue in the last you know 12 inches or so close to the cap. And so it's obvious they've already had a chimney fire because of the heat that the, uh, the the chimney up there had been exposed to. I go inside. It is completely the dirtiest stove I've ever seen in my life. I slide the pipe up. fires out, of course. Slide the pipe up off the top of the stove and go to put my hand up in the pipe just to kind of feel how thick the creosote is. And I hit a solid blockage. I mean, you know, it was it had formed right there at that turbulent area as it comes out of the top of the stove into the first section of pipe. It had virtually completely blocked the whole thing. Now, there were some little passageways through it, um, but it was it was like 80% blocked or better. And I ask him what he's burning, and he promptly takes me outside to show a perfectly, you know, a nice-looking green pine tree that he had cut down in his backyard and was burning, throwing it directly into the stove with no seasoning whatsoever. So, I mean, that's the absolute worst-case scenario, uh, but it illustrates the point. You can really clog up a chimney by burning, you know, First of all, you know, wet wood, not seasoned wood. And second of all, by burning sappy, you know, soft woods rather than good hardwoods. Just, you know, pick your, your best hardwoods you can. Now there, I, I, I wrote something up years ago and I need to find it so that I can uh, publish it on my, on my website uh, as like a little PDF. But there is a, a method for burning unseasoned wood in an emergency situation. And, in, and the short takeaway of it is this. You burn the brightest, hottest fire you can with the smallest amount of fuel at a time that you can. And that's going to reduce the amount of creosote formation to the best of your appliance's ability. Um, If you put a lot of fuel in and you have it smoldering because it's not burning bright and hot and you've got the air turned down, you're going to get the dirtiest possible burn out of that type of fuel. So smaller fires, bright, hot, as hot as you can, the most air, you know, if you've got a stove that's air controllable, turn the air all the way up. That's going to make a that kind of a situation um, less problematic. Uh, it's not the best, but it's it'll it'll be better. You brought up pine, and I mean, I was always taught as a kid, we don't burn pine. Pine does not go in the fireplace. Pine does not go in the stove. No pine. Uh, so of course, I get on the air and I say, basically, this is you know my rule. I don't burn pine. I don't burn anything. It's a conifer. And then I get emails from people up in Canada that say, hey, we burn pine all the time. It's you have to season it like anything else for it to burn well. But we have no problems with it. Some of the places where we are at up here, if you didn't burn pine, you wouldn't have much to burn. What are your thoughts on that? Because I'm still kind of like anti-pine on the on the fireplace. Well, being from Oklahoma, there's not a whole lot of pine trees uh, here in central Oklahoma where I am, so I'm not uh, not personally experienced with it other than that one customer. I would say that if I was in a situation or in any region where I had to burn pine, I would definitely be bur- be seasoning it um, very very well, and um, and then if 
you know, basically just, you know, kind of like the, uh, pay, you know, Rob Wolf's paleo approach, try it for 30 days and then see how it's working. You know, if you have to burn that, you know, first of all, make sure it's seasoned as well as possible. Maybe run your stove a little bit higher setting. Don't pack the stove full of wood if, if you're, if you're not sure about it yet. And then, you know, get up there and check your chimney. You know, um, one of the best investments you can make if you have a stove is a chimney brush and, and a few chimney rods so that you can clean your own chimney. Um, it, it does a couple things for you. It saves you money in the long run. Um, as long as you don't fall off the ladder and have to go to the uh, hospital or, you know, um, set a leg. But it, it will save you money, and it also lets you see what is happening in your chimney so that you know, hey, I know that I had to burn that junk, you know, whatever wood that because I couldn't get good seasoned oak or whatever for, for part of this season. And then you go up to clean it, and you see, hey, my chimney is extra dirty as a result of what had happened there. So you know from experience, you can see the results. I also kind of my feeling with pine is if you're going to use it, maybe even you have your bigger pieces and you would maybe split split it once or split it twice and end up with quads. Split it one more time, use a little bit smaller material. I think that helps it dry out better, season better, and burn more efficiently. Because I do like when we sit out on our porch and have a little fire pot or whatever. I do burn pine in there, and I got to admit it smells good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pine is a, is a great campfire, um, but again, you know, seasoning it well. That's uh, another thing we hadn't touched on is how to really season something well, and it needs to be split down to a manageable size. So, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good size guy, six foot tall, um, too many pounds, and uh, you know, if you know, my forearm basically is about the biggest that a piece of of wood ought to be. So, you know, four inches or so across. Um, you know, my arm's a little bigger than that in places, but um, you know, not not really small pieces, but you don't want big, solid, you know, large pieces. If you get past about, you know, five, six inches or so in diameter, it needs to be split. And um, the idea of seasoning is that it would be cut down and it would sit there until the next season. You know, not necessarily a full 12 months, but, you know, think about the little house on the prairie type of set setting. You would, you know, burn what you had to in the wintertime. And then, you know, when spring hit, you'd get out there and start chopping wood and you're, you know, a little bit here and there all all spring and summer. And you would be building up that wood pile so that you had wood to use for the next season, and you would start with your oldest stuff and work your way forward. Um, but splitting it smaller um, will help; it'll season better. You know, I, I hear a lot of times people go, "Well, you know, that tree's been dead for you know two years or whatever, and it's standing up there, and it's good season wood standing right up there in the forest." Well. It may be to some degree, but it's always going to season better when it's cut into smaller pieces. So, you know, the smaller limbs may be seasoned pretty good, but if they were cut to length, you know, 18 inches or so for a typical stove, uh, 24 inches is a true rick, um, then it's going to season even faster um, in, in a matter of a few months or whatever, depending on where, you know, how small it's split and, and where it's stacked. But when you've got a tree that's standing in the forest, it's seasoning from the outside in, but because it's not split in those larger parts, it's not going to be that well seasoned in the center. You know, there's lots of variables to that, but it just don't assume that because something's been dead for a couple of years and has not been cut up, that it must already be seasoned. Once you go to cut it up, especially the bigger stuff, you know, get a moisture meter um, or just feel the weight of it compared to stuff that you know is seasoned and see. You know, if it's still kind of heavy, it probably needs to go on the back of your wood wood lot so that you can use it later, and um, you know use something that's better seasoned for the moment. Yeah, I'll add to that too. If you have a tree that dies and it's dead and it's standing, not only is it somewhat of a fire hazard standing there, but if you're going to turn it into firewood, I'd actually recommend that you cut it down as soon as you realize it's dead. 
and cut it up, not just for seasoning, but in the interest of preserving your chainsaw chains. When those trees stand for a year or two like that, and you go to cut them, they may not be perfectly seasoned, but if it's an oak uh, or a hickory or something like that, let me tell you what they are. They're hard. They're really hard, and they are really hard on a saw. Uh, and you make your work a lot harder by leaving that tree stand that long. I, I mean, that's not really a heating thing, but it is a, it is an overall acquisition of wood thing. And I'm not saying if you have a standing dead tree uh, that's been there for a while not to do it. Just if you have a choice, as soon as you realize that thing's not going to make it, it's going to come out, get it down, and get it cut up. Yeah. So, hey, um, some of this stuff can be kind of expensive, and there's there are some other things out there that are like kind of like an in-between do you know any of them that are worth having? Like I've seen reflector plates and things like that. Is anything like that really useful? Uh, you're talking about reflector plates for like firebacks that would go into a yeah fireplace. for a fire, stick it in the fireplace instead of doing all the stove stuff. The kind of like a, a you know like maybe I can't afford my stove this year, so I'm going to do something to get more efficiency out of my fireplace until I can. Well, those kinds of uh, products typically, for like a fireback specifically, you, you're really not increasing the efficiency of the appliance. You're not increasing how well the fire is burning and turning the fuel into heat. And you're not, what you're really doing more is just re- reflecting more of the radiant heat out into the room. So you may be increasing your, your, um, oh, I mean, let me back up a second. In, in efficiency on appliances, there's two parts to efficiency. One is combustion efficiency. And one is uh, the other one that's escaping my mind, of course. Um, but the efficiency that has to do with how well that heat is transferred into the room. Heat transfer efficiency. There you go. Um, so combustion efficiency is how completely the fuel is burned. Heat transfer efficiency is how well that heat is transferred into the room. So a fireback is going to reflect a little more heat into the room, but it's not really improving how well that fuel is burning. And in an open fireplace, you basically have the same efficiency as a typical campfire, maybe a little better. Um, now if you have doors, um, that's going to help because you're going to reduce the amount of, of air coming through, so it's going to make it burn a little bit better because it's, it's such a large open thing um, for a typical fireplace. Um, if, if you're in that kind of a situation, if you do have natural gas or propane, probably your better bet is just to go with like a vent-free, vent-free gas logs um, or some kind of a small vent-free appliance that can be set in the fireplace that can then close the damper and all that heat comes into the room. Just always check your manual for the appliance and check your clearances for your mantle because, like we talked about earlier, fireplaces are primarily a decorative appliance right now. And the mantles are not high enough. They are too deep, and they're almost always made out of wood. And if you put a vent-free log set in, that heat's going to roll out into the room because you close the damper, so there's nothing being lost up the chimney anymore. And you're going to overheat your mantle and possibly catch it on fire if it does it long enough. So, um, you know, we, in, in our stove shop, we also sell gas logs, uh, vent-free gas logs, vented ones that are more decorative, um, gas appliances, pellet appliances. So we cover the, the whole range of bases. In my own house, you know, the cobbler's kids have the worst uh, shoes. Uh, I don't have a wood stove. Um, part of that's because we're, we're looking at possibly moving. We don't want to change anything or, or put something in that somebody else might not like. Uh, I'd have to cut out the damper. So I, I'm trying not to alter the fireplace. But I have a vent-free gas log set. And um, that's our backup heat source because uh, with little kids in the house, uh, if we get into a situation in the wintertime and we have to have backup heat, you know, I've got to have something. I don't believe in, in being without a backup on that. Absolutely. I mean, that's just good prepping overall. Um, you also, When you mentioned the mantle, the other thing I thought of is I've seen an awful lot of big screen TVs mounted up over fireplaces. 
And with some of these things that we're talking about, that may not be a really great idea. Right. I mean, you know, that's something that comes up a lot more these days. The last few years has become very popular. Again, it depends on what kind of appliance you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a standard open fireplace or a, you know, low price, inexpensive direct vent gas fireplace or something else that is vented, it's probably not going to be that much of an issue. Um, as long as you have a good mantle that's protecting the heat from rising up directly at the, uh, at the, um, TV or whatever. But, you know, ask anybody that's been around computers in any kind of an industrial setting. Server rooms are kept very cold. And that's because they, electronic appliances work better and last longer when they are not hot. And putting a TV over a fireplace, especially if you have gone to a vent-free gas log set or put in a, a wood stove that's going to heat um, or any other thing that's really a heat output uh, device, you're just going to be shortening the life of that TV or whatever appliance is up there. Um, you know, if that's what you want, that's the look you want, um, you, know, you can you know, hedge your bets and do your best and just kind of hope for the best, but just know that you're probably not doing anything to help with the lifespan of that appliance. I mean, absolutely. Somebody with a telecom background, I can tell you, it's all about keeping the electronics uh, as, as cool as you possibly can when you're looking at MTVFs and the lifetime of the, the stuff. Well, you've done a great job for us. I wanted to make sure we get a chance to chat a little bit here at the end about your blog. You have a cool blog I mentioned when I introduced you called PrepChurch.com. You want to tell folks, folks uh, a little bit about that? Well, that's uh, something I started up about a year ago. I've not been real, real active on it, you know, one or two blogs a month on average, but uh, I just kind of post on, you know, what I see going on and uh, typically stuff, um, you know, the church angle. Uh, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I believe in, uh, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, pretty traditional um, Christian beliefs, and I believe that there's a lot missing in the, tr- the modern American, especially Christian churches, that they're not understanding some of these basic concepts that the preparedness community is actually espousing um, apart from any religious overtones. So I I saw this disparity between, you know, I would go to church and I would hear sermons and I'd be going, yeah, but you need to be helping people to get out of debt. You need to be helping people to, you know, build up savings, to prepare for a rainy day. And then I go to the preparedness community and they're talking about all those things and my church was not. So it's kind of the intersection of, survivalism and Christianity is my tagline there, and it's to bring together what I think is missing in some of the religious teachings I've been hearing, but also to bring kind of a a religious viewpoint to some of the preparedness. And I had people early on tell me, you know, oh, you're you're touching the third rail, I I wouldn't go into religion. Well, you know, I understand that that can be a very sensitive topic, and so, you know, I'm not here to beat people up over the head about it, you know. It, it is what it is, and that's that's my viewpoint. And there's plenty of good other people. I mean, I listen to your podcast, and, and you don't have overt religious overtones to it. It's just a lot of good information. And you know, I'm just trying to kind of present my my thoughts on things, and, and that's where I come from. And on the stove thing, I, I did put a post out earlier this year um, about stove questions. I, I've spent two or three years um, on some survivalist websites, on one in specific um, that I thought was a very good website, answering questions about stoves and, and things, and uh, kind of decided at one point I was getting burned out in general on, on the, the whole forum um, life and decided I was going to take a break from that. And I decided, you know, hey, I've got this knowledge because of my day job of working with stoves and, and my, my history with, with certification on wood, gas, and pellet appliances. 
you know, I could answer more questions, but why don't I do this on my own website? So I was listening to your podcast, um, you know, the Five Minutes with Jack website, and uh, really kind of inspired me to go ahead and start up my own where I could say, uh, hey, if I'm going to put time and effort into this, I might as well do it in some place where I can build on it and, and have a little more control over the content because, you know, I don't know how long the content's going to be available on the forums that I've been on. So um, that's that's kind of my approach and, and how it came to be. Oh, that's very cool. And on, on, on the religious stuff, I don't see any issue at all with it. I mean, I have a different worldview, I think, than a lot of people would even expect. I actually go out of my way to kind of not bring that up, but that's because of my format. But if you listen to my business podcast, then you know very well that I am a huge believer in a niche. And if that's your thing and that's your niche, that's what you talk about. And as a, I guess I would call myself an ex-Catholic who grew up in the Catholic Church with Catholic school and all of that, uh, very, very familiar with the Bible and could make an excellent case to preppers from that vantage point if I wanted to. I think it's a, it's a perfect, uh, way of explaining prepping to someone with, with, uh, with that belief system. So I think it's really cool. Well, I'm just hoping that it uh, reaches some people that might not otherwise reach, um, with both messages. And, uh, so you know, I'll straddle the fence and, uh, do what I can and try not to get, you know, burned on the third rail there. <laughs> no, I can't see it because it's your community, it's your blog, it's your thing. If someone goes there and doesn't want it, they shouldn't want it. If you go to prepchurch.com and get offended that you heard about church or God, then you get, that's your problem, right. not the author's problem. And if you went to something completely different, like you know Joe's Fish Store, and you were offended by fishes being filleted, well, you shouldn't have went there. So, I mean, I, I can't, anybody that has a problem with that, I would simply use the moderate function within WordPress to eliminate them. Uh, just because it's not... It's different if you were going into someone else's community and pushing a message. But when you're in a poll marketing situation, you're looking for like-minded people. And I think it's awesome. Well, I'm hoping that it turns into something long-term. I want to try to you know, make it uh, monetized at some point. But uh, you know, kind of on your model, trying to just basically put out my philosophy, put out a lot of the information free of charge, and just kind of let people get to know who I am and what I'm about. And... You know, if it develops into that, great. If it doesn't, hey, it's a nice little hobby on the side. Kind of gives me a place to, uh, you know, express some of my thoughts. And, you know, my wife gets tired of me talking about certain things sometimes. And You can go write it and talk to people that want to hear yep. you. Well, you know, the one piece of advice I'd give you, post more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, I, I got your, uh, you know, the PDF that, that you have with the Five Minutes with Jack and started going down through it step by step. And, you know, and like most people that don't do well, I stumbled over certain things, didn't get certain things done, but uh, you know I've got a list of things I'm trying to get back to. But just posting is uh, you know one of the things I'm trying to do. But you know I've got a, a family, three kids, trying to you know make a living, trying to work my day job, and uh, like a lot of other people in the community, you know I, I can't I can't do everything, but uh, I do what I can, and uh, you know making myself a little more independent every day. I hope. Well, absolutely. I think you've got a lot of great information to share, and I certainly appreciate you taking the time to come on the show with us today and uh, give us the uh, benefit of your experience. I know that I understand uh, the entire topic better today. I think our listeners will again uh, as well, and uh, I'd like to thank you for being here today, man. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad I could share. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Jeff Wheatley, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.